Chapter Twenty Three of *The Mountebank* by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Twenty Three. He banged his hand on the little iron table in front of us and started to his feet, exploding at last with his suppressed fury. The infernal villain! I gasped for a few seconds. Then I accomplished my life's effort in self-control. My whole being clamoured for an explosion equally violent of compressed mirth. I ached to lie back in my chair and shriek with laughter. The denouement of the little drama was so amazingly unexpected, so unexpectedly ludicrous. A glimmer of responsive humour in his eyes would have sent me off. But there he stood, with his grimmest battlefield face, denouncing his betrayer. Even a smile on my part would have been insulting. Worked up, he told me the whole of the astonishing business, as far as he knew it. They had eloped at dawn, like any pair of young lovers. Of that there was no doubt. The car had picked up Bacchus at his hotel in Roya, Lackaday had the landlord's word for it, and had carried the pair away, heaven knew whither. The proprietor of the Roya garage deposed that Mr. Bacchus had hired the car for the day, mentioning no objective. The Roanaways had the whole of France before them. Pursuit was hopeless. As Lackaday had planned to go to Vichy, he went to Vichy. There seemed nothing else to do. "'But why elope at dawn?' I cried. "'Why all the fellow's unnecessary duplicity? Why, in the name of Machiavelli, did he seize upon my ten o'clock invitation with such enthusiasm? Why his private conversation with me? Why throw dust into my sleepy eyes? What did he gain by it?' Lackaday shrugged his shoulders. That part of the matter scarcely interested him. He was concerned mainly with the sting of the viper Bacchus, whom he had nourished in his bosom. "'But, my dear fellow,' said I at last, after a tiring march up and down the hot terrace, "'you don't seem to realise that Bacchus has solved all your difficulties, ambulando, by walking off, or motoring off, with your great responsibility.' "'You mean,' said he, coming to a halt, "'that this has removed the reason for my remaining on the stage?' "'It seems so,' said I. He frowned. I wish it could have happened differently. No man can bear to be tricked and fooled and made a mock of. But it does give you your freedom, said I. He thrust his hands into his trouser pockets. I suppose it does, he admitted savagely. But there's a price for everything. Even freedom can be purchased too highly. He strode on. I had to accompany him, perspiringly. It was a very hot day. We talked and talked came back to the startling event. We had to believe it, because it was incredible, as Tertullian cheerily remarked of ecclesiastical dogma. But, short of the Archbishop of Canterbury eloping with the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbour, nothing could seem less possible. If Bacchus had nurtured nefarious designs, good heavens! He could have executed them years before. Well, perhaps not. When one hasn't a penny in one's pocket, even the most cynical pauses ere he proposes romantic flight with a lady equally penniless. But, since April, Bacchus had been battening on the good archdeacon his brother's substantial allowance. Why had he tarried? "'His diabolical cunning lay in wait for a weak moment,' growled Lackaday. All through this discussion I came up against a paradox of human nature— Although it was obvious that the unprincipled Bacchus had rendered my good friend the service of ridding him of the responsibility of a woman whom he had ceased to love, if ever he had loved her at all, 
a woman who, for all her loyal devotion through loveless years, had stood implacably between him and the realisation of his dreams. Yet he rampaged against his benefactor, as though he had struck a fatal blow at the roots of his honour and his happiness. "'But after all, man, can't you see,' he cried, in protest at my worldly and sophistical arguments, "'that I've lost one of the most precious things in the world? My implicit faith in a fellow man!' I gave Bacchus a brother's trust. He has betrayed it. Where am I? His thousands faults have been familiar to me for years. I discounted them for the good in him. I thought I had grasped it. He clenched his delicate hand in a passionate gesture. But now, he opened it, nothing. I'm at sea. How can I know that you, whom I have trusted more than any other man with my heart's secrets— The concierge, with a dusty chauffeur in tow, providentially cut short this embarrassing apostrophe. Uh, Monsieur le Capitaine Hilton? asked the chauffeur. C'est moi. He handed me a letter. I glanced at the writing on the envelope. From Bacchus, I said. Tell me, to the chauffeur, how did you come by it? Monsieur charged me to deliver it into the hands of Monsieur le Capitaine. I have this moment returned to Toroya. Ah, said I, you drove the automobile? Where is Monsieur Bacchus? That, said he, I have pledged my honour not to divulge. I fished in my pocket for some greasy rags of paper money which I pressed into his honourable hand. He bowed and departed. I tore open the envelope. "'You'll excuse me?' "'Oh, of course,' said Lacus curtly. He lit a cigarette and stalked to the end of the terrace. The letter bore neither date nor address. I read, "'My dear Hilton, you have heard of Touchstone. You have heard of Audrey. Shakespeare has doubtless convinced you of the inevitability of their mating.' I have always prided myself of a certain touchstone element in my nature. There is much that is Audrey-esque in the lady whose disappearance from Clermont-Ferrand may be causing perturbation. As my Shakespearean pre-incarnation scorned dishonourable designs, so do even I. The marriage of Verve Elodie Marisco and Horatio Bacchus will take place at the earliest opportunity allowed by French law. If that delays too long, we shall fly to England— where an archbishop's special licence will induce a family archdeacon to marry us straight away. My flippancy, my dear Hilton, is but a motley coat. If there is one being in this world whom I love and honour, it is Andrew Lackaday. From the first day I met him, I, a cynical, disillusioned wastrel, he, a raw yet uncompromising lad, I felt that here, somehow, was a sheet-anchor in my life. He has fed me when I have been angry, he has lashed me when I have been craven-hearted, he has raised me when I have fallen. There can be only three beings in the cosmos who know how I have been saved times out of number from the nethermost abyss. I, and Andrew Lackaday, and God. I passed my hands over my eyes when I read this remarkable outburst of devoted affection on the part of the seducer and betrayer for the man he had wronged. I thought of the old couplet about the dissembling of love and the kicking downstairs. I read on, however, and found the mystery explained. The time has come for me to pay him, in part, my infinite debt of gratitude. You may have been surprised when I wrung your hand warmly before parting. Your words removed every hesitating scruple. Had you said, There is nothing between a certain lady and Andrew Lackaday, I should have been, to some extent, nonplussed. I should have doubted my judgment. I should have pressed you further. If you had convinced me that the whole basis of my projected action was illusory, I should have found means to cancel the arrangements. But remember what you said. 
there can't by any possibility be anything between Lady Oriordane and Petit Patou. Damn the fellow, I muttered. Now he's calmly shifting the responsibility onto me. And I swore a deep oath that never more would I interfere in anybody else's affairs, not even if Bolshevist butchers were playing with him before my very eyes. There, my dear Hilton, the letter went on, you gave away the key of the situation. My judgment had been unerring. As Petit Patou, our friend stood beyond the pale. As General Lackaday, he stepped into all the privileges of the enclosure. Bound by such ties to Madame Patou as an honourable and upright gentleman like our friend could not dream of severing, he was likewise bound to his vain and heart-breaking existence as Petit Patou. A free man, he could cast off his mountebank trappings and go forth into the world once more as General Lackaday, the social equal of the gracious lady whom he loved, and whose feelings towards him, as eyes far less careless than ours could see at a glance, were not those of placid indifference. The solution of the problem dawned on me like an inspiration. Why not sacrifice my not overvalued celibacy on the altar of friendship? For years, Elodie and I have been, en lui bien et tout honneur, the most intimate of comrades. I don't say that, for all the gold in the Indies, I would not marry a woman out of my brother's archdeaconry if she asked me. I probably should. But I should most certainly, such being my unregenerate nature, run away with the gold and leave the lady. For respectability to have attraction, you must be bred in it. You must regard the dog-collar and chain as the great and God-given blessing of your life. The old fable of the dog and the wolf— but I've lived my life till past fifty, as the disreputable wolf, and so, please God, will I remain till I die. But after all, being human, I'm quite a kind sort of wolf. Thanks to my brother, no longer will hunger drive the wolf abroad. You remember Villon's lines? Necessité fait Jean misprendre, et femme sautir le loup des bois. I shall live in plethoric ease my elderly vulpine life. But the elderly wolf needs a mate for his old age, who is at one with him in his, entirely unsinful, habits of disrepute. Where in the universe, then, could I find a fitter mate than Elodie? Which brings me back, although I am aware of glaring psychological flaws, to my touchstone and ordinary prelude. Writing as I am doing in a devil of a hurry, I don't pretend to Meredithian analysis. Elodie's refusal to marry Andrew Lackaday has something to do with a woman's illusions. She is going to marry me because there's no possibility of any kind of illusion whatsoever. My good brother, whom, I grieve to say, is in the very worst of health, informs me that he has made a will in my favour. Heaven knows I am contented enough as I am. But the fact remains, which no doubt will ease our dear friend's mind, that Elodie's future is assured. In the meanwhile, we will devote ourselves to the cultivation of that peculiarly disreputable sloth which is conducive to longevity, relevé, according to the gastronomic idiom, on my part, with a study of French heraldry, which in the present world upheaval is the most futile pursuit conceivable by a diagenic philosopher. I can't write this to Lackaday, who no doubt is saying all the dreadful things that he learned with our armies in Flanders. He would not understand. He would not understand the magic of romance, the secrecy, the thrill of the dawn elopement, the romance of the coup de théâtre by which alone I was able to induce Elodie to cooperate in the part payment of my infinite debt of gratitude. I therefore write to you, confident that, 
As an urbane citizen of the world, you will be able to convey to the man I love most on earth the real essence of this, the apologia of Elodie and myself. What more can a man do than lay down his bachelor life for a friend? Yours sincerely, Horatio Bacchus. P.S. If you had convinced me that I was staring hypnotically at a mare's nest, I should have had much pleasure in joining you on your excursion. I hope you went and enjoyed it, and found Orkival exceeding my poor dithyrambic. I had to read over this preposterous epistle again, before I fully grasped its significance. On the first reading it seemed incredible that the man could be sincere in his professions. On the second his perfect good faith manifested itself in every line. Had I read it a third time, I no doubt should have regarded him as an heroic figure, with a halo already beginning to shimmer about his head. I walked up to Lackaday at the end of the terrace and handed him the letter. It was the simplest thing to do. He also read it twice, the first time with scowling brow, the second with a milder expression of incredulity. He looked down on me. I don't stand when a handy chair invites me to sit. This is the most amazing thing I've ever heard of. I nodded. He walked a few yards away and attacked the letter for the third time. Then he gave it back to me with a smile. I don't believe he's such an infernal scoundrel after all. Ah, said I. He leaned over the balustrade and plunged into deep reflection. If it's genuine, it's an unheard-of piece of quixotism. I'm sure it's genuine. By gum, said he. He gazed at the vine-clad hill in the silence of wondering admiration. At last I tapped him on the shoulder. Let us lunch, said I. We strolled to the upper terrace. It is wonderful, he remarked on the way thither, how much sheer goodness there is in humanity. Pure selfishness on my part, I hate lunching alone, said I. He turned on me a pained look. I wasn't referring to you. Then, meeting something quizzical in my eye, he grinned his broad ear-to-ear -ear grin of a child of six. We lunched, we smoked and talked. At every moment a line seemed to fade from his careworn face. At any rate, everything was not for the worst in the worst possible of worlds. I think he felt his sense of freedom steal over him in his gradual glow. At last I had him laughing and mimicking, in his inimitable way, a thing which he had not done for my benefit since the first night of our acquaintance, the elderly and outraged Moignon, whom he proposed to visit in Paris, for the purpose of cancelling his contracts. As for Vichy, Vichy could go hang. There were ravening multitudes of demobilised variety artists besieging every stage door in France. He was letting down nobody, neither the management nor the public. Moignon would find means of consolation. "'My dear Hilton,' said he, "'now that my faith in Bacchus is not only restored, but infinitely strengthened, and my mind is at rest concerning Elodie, I feel as though ten years were lifted from my life. I'm no longer Petit Patou.' the blessed relief of it. Perhaps, he added after a pause, the discipline has been good for my soul. In what way? Well, you see, he replied thoughtfully, in my profession I always was a second-rater. I was aware of it, but I was content because I did my best. In the army my vanity leads me to believe I was a first-rater. Then I had to go back not only to second-rate, but to third-rate, 
having lost a lot in five years. It was humiliating. But all the same, I've no doubt it had been the best thing in the world for me. The old hats will still fit. If I had a quarter of your vicious modesty, said I, I would see that I turned it into a dazzling virtue. What are your plans? You remember my telling you of a man I met in Marseille called Arbuthnot? Yes, said I, the fellow who shies at coconuts in the Solomon Islands. He grinned, and with singular aptness he replied, I'll cable him this afternoon and see whether I can still have three shies for a penny. We discussed the proposal. Presently he rose. He must go to Vichy, where he had to wind up certain affairs of Les Petits Patous. Tomorrow he would start for Paris, and await Arbuthnot's reply. "'And possibly you'll see Lady Oriol. I hazarded, this being the first time her name was mentioned. His brow clouded, and he shook his head sadly. "'I think not,' said he. And as I was about to protest, he checked me with a gesture. "'That's all done with.' "'My dear, distinguished idiot,' said I. "'It can never be,' he declared with an air of finality. "'You'll break Bacchus's heart.' "'Sorry,' said he. "'You'll break mine.' "'Sorrier still.' "'No, no, my dear friend,' he said gently. "'Don't let us talk about that any more.' After he had gone, I experienced a severe attack of anticlimax, and feeling lonely, I wrote to Lady Oriol. In the coarse phraseology of the day, I spread myself out over that letter. It was a piece of high-class descriptive writing. I gave her a beautiful account of the elopement, and, as an interesting human document, I enclosed a copy of Bacchus's letter.' As I had to wait a day or two for her promised address, her letter conveying it gave me no particular news of herself, I did not receive her answer until I reached London. It was characteristic. My dear Tony, thanks for your interesting letter. I've adopted a mongrel Irish terrier, the most fascinating skinful of sin the world has ever produced. I'll show him to you some day. Yours, Oriol. I wrote back in a fury something about never wanting to see her or her infernal dog as long as I lived. I was angry and depressed. I don't know why. It was none of my business. But I felt that I had been scandalously treated by this young woman. I felt that I had subscribed to their futile romance an enormous fund of interest and sympathy. This chilly end of it left me with a sense of bleak disappointment. I was not rendered merrier a short while afterwards by an airy letter from Horatio Bacchus enclosing a flourishing announcement in French of his marriage with the verve Elodie Marisco ne Fegasso. Behold me, said the fellow, cooing with content in the plenitude of perfect connubiality. I did not desire to behold him at all. His cooing left me cold. I bore on my shoulders the burden of the tragio comedy of Oriol and Lacadet. If she had never seen him as Petit Patou, all might have been well, in spite of Elodie, who had been somewhat destructive of romantic glamour. But the visit to the circus, I concluded, finished the business. Beneath the painted monster in green silk tights, the dignified soldier whom she loved was eclipsed for ever. And then a thousand commonplace social realities arose and stood stonily in her path. And Lacadet? Well... I suppose he was faced with the same unscalable stone wall of convention. Lacadet's letters were brief, and, such as they were, full of Arbuthnot. He was sailing as soon as he could find a berth. I gave the pair up, and went to an elder brother's place in Invernessshire for rest and shooting and rain and family criticism and such-like amenities. 
Among my fellow guests I found young Charles Verity Stuart and Evadne, nominally under governess tutelage. The child kept me sane during a dreadful month. Having been sick of the sound of guns going off during the war, I found, to my dismay, scant pleasure in explosions followed by the death of little birds. And then, I suppose I am growing old, the sport in which I once rejoiced involved such hours of wet and weary walking that I renounced it without too many sighs. But I had nothing to do. My pre-war dilettante excursions into the literary world had long since come to an end. I was obsessed by the story of Lackaday, and so, out of sheer tedium vitae, and at the risk of a family quarrel, I shut myself up with the famous manuscript and my own reminiscences, and began to reduce things to such coherence as you now have had the opportunity of judging. It was at breakfast, one morning in November, that the butler handed me a telegram. I opened the orange envelope. The missive, reply paid, ran, "'Will you swear that there are real-life cannibals in the Solomon Islands? "'If not, it will be the final disillusion of my life. "'Oriol.' "'I passed the paper to my neighbour, Evadne, healthily deep in porridge. "'She glanced it, glass of milk in one hand, poised spoon in the other. "'With the diabolical intuition of eternal woman "'and the ironical imperturbability of the modern maiden, "'she raised her candid eyes to mine, and declared, "'She's quite mad, but I told you all about it years ago.' "'This lofty calmness I could not share. "'I suddenly found myself unable to stand another minute of Scotland. "'Righteous indignation sped me to London. "'I found the pair together in Lady Oriel's drawing-room. "'Without formal greeting I apostrophised them. "'You two have behaved disgracefully. "'Here have I been utterly miserable about you, "'and all the time you've left me in the dark.' "'Where we were ourselves, my dear Hilton, I assure you,' said Lackaday. "'I shed light as soon as I could,' said Oriel. "'We bumped into each other last Monday evening in Bond Street, and found it was us.' "'I told her I was going to the Solomon Islands. "'And I thought I wanted to go there, too.' "'From which I gather,' said I, "'that you are going to get married.' Lady Oriel smiled and shook her head. "'Oh, dear, no!' "'I was really angry.' "'Then what on earth made you drag me all the way from the north of Scotland?' "'To congratulate us, my dear friend,' said Lackaday. "'We were married this morning.' "'I think you're a pair of fools,' said I, later, not yet quite mollified. "'Why, for getting married?' said Oriel. "'No,' said I, "'for putting it off to a fortuitous bump in Bond Street.'" End of chapter 23 End of The Mountebank by William John Locke